The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Well, just a, quick, a couple of quick parables again. Uh, this is our final uh, installment in our brief series through the parables within the Gospel of Matthew. And we finish it up with these terrific parables. Uh, some of my favorites, so eager as we started this teaching on parables, I was anticipating this passage, so excited for it, and so glad that we could learn from it today. Rem- remember, Jesus is a great storyteller. That's what we see in these parables, and the purpose of these parables was to represent the kingdom of God to us. As we ask the question, what is, what is the kingdom like, and how does God work in our lives? How is he working in our world today? And what do we mean by the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is the complete and sovereign reign and rule of Jesus over all of creation. Over all of creation, all things seen and unseen. So just a quick summary. Remember that the kingdom has come and is coming. There are aspects of the kingdom that have already come. As Jesus came and started his, his ministry, his public ministry, he came preaching the kingdom, that the kingdom has come. Well, how has it come? Well, the power of God has come to forgive. And those who trust in Jesus have that forgiveness right now. There's nothing that we are waiting for in respects to our position with Christ. We are in Christ as we trust in him. We're forgiven. God looks on us and we are, we are righteous. We are deemed righteous based on the righteousness of Christ. And that is something that is present and real for us today. And yet, I know that we would agree that there's things about the kingdom of heaven that are yet to come. There are things that we long for, that we know are incomplete in this world. As things are broken and and falling apart, everything from mold and mildew to war and famine and abuse, we see that there are things that feel incomplete about the kingdom of God. We're still waiting for it. We haven't been spared from the difficulty of a broken world. We haven't been spared from the difficulty of worry and depression and anxiety or physical illness or dysfunction within families, or, or people abusing power within, in, in, in world uh, countries and things like that. We wait for God's unfinished work to be completed. And so, so the kingdom has come and is coming. And so now we, we look at these parables, and we need to understand them within our current time and place that we live. We live in this already not yet, in this so seeding time. We live in between the time where the kingdom has come, and yet we're waiting for God to do something com- to complete it all. What does it mean to live within this time period where we experience the witness of God's power and yet we're waiting for something to be complete? Well, these two short parables, I believe, help us understand how do we live within this time period, in the already and the not yet. They help us understand what to do in the meantime. Notice these two parables. They have a lot in common. They both start off the same way. The kingdom of heaven is like, and then it tells us what it is like using this parable. They both describe a man who who finds something of supreme value. And then there's this element of joy that is mentioned in the first parable explicitly, but in the second one it's implied that in joy, both of these men go and sell everything that they have in order to purchase and to take hold of this great treasure. Both parables end the same way, but slightly different wording, where both men take complete control and ownership and possession of what they found, and their joy is complete. And so both of these are really saying the same thing. They mean the same thing. The point is the same for both parables. And what is it? Well, here is the point of the parable. When it comes to the value of the kingdom of God, 
We get infinitely more than we ever give up, even if we give up everything. That's the point. And that's all we need to know about this parable. Let's pray. No, I'm sorry. Way to go. Again, with these short parables, that's what these parables are meant to do. And we've kind of made that joke before in this series, but that's the truth. The parables are meant to show us something plain. What is right there? We don't have to dissect it too much, but this is what it is about. That even if you gave up everything and gained the kingdom, you would have everything. You're not losing anything by giving up everything if you have the kingdom. And so he gives two examples. Jesus gives two examples to press this main point. Both of these men have their eyes opened. They discover something of complete value that, that compels them to act. It changes their behavior. And, and what compels them to act is basically this. It's the, it's the value of the treasure. It is the joy of the exchange of giving up everything to get that treasure. And then it is the hope of their ownership of that treasure. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So first, let's look at this, the value of the treasure. Jesus is, is reframing our understanding of life in God's kingdom by bringing our attention to this concept of a very valuable thing, a very valuable treasure that is more valuable than anything else. How valuable is it? Well, it's of supreme value. There's nothing more important than this. Jesus goes out of his way to remove any doubt that there's anything that we could possess in our life and in this story of these two men, anything they have, you have to imagine they had some pretty valuable things. They sold everything they had. You have to imagine that there were some things of sentimental value. There were some things of great monetary value that they had. But nothing compared to this great treasure that they found. So the man finds a treasure and he hides it. And so that he can sell everything he has and come back to the field and buy the field so that he can have the treasure. Have you ever done this? I mean, maybe not literally this, but have you ever find, found a shirt you know, on a, on a rack at the store, but you, you're not going to buy it right away and so you hide it? Am I the only one that does that? You know, you, you hide it in the back or you, you put those shorts like tucked behind the, the, that stack of clothes and say, okay, I'm going to come back and get this. And, and sure enough, you come back and it's, it's gone. Uh, but you ever do that? The point is our, our behavior changes when we find something that we is really want. When we find what we are looking for, it compels us to act. It changes our life. It changes our behavior. When we find what we're looking for or we stumble upon something of great value that we weren't looking for, it puts an end to all kind of searching because we have found what we have longed for, what our heart longs for. Well, this is the kingdom of God. That is Jesus' point. The kingdom of God ends the searching for everything. It ends the searching of all searching because we have found that which is of supreme value. Jesus is, for lack of better words, he is a connoisseur of great value. After all, he is the visible expression of the invisible God. He is the exact imprint of God's nature, and he is the glory of God. There is no other way to see the glory of God more perfectly, more beautifully, more completely than by looking at Jesus. He knows what is good because he is good. He knows what is glory because he is glory. He knows what is perfect and holy because he is those things. Jesus knows what it is like to, to be and to find and to know something of great value. He knows what is good and perfect and beautiful, and he's telling us there is absolutely nothing of greater value than the unhindered rule of God in our hearts. Worth giving up everything so that we can have that. It's like a fine artist who finds that Monet at a garage sale, sells everything he has to come and get it. It is like that car collector who finds that Aston Martin, sells everything he has to get it. 
It is like that toy collector that finds the 1927 Mickey Mouse Soft Heads Ped Dispenser. Just look it up, it's pretty valuable. And sells everything he has to get that which, what, which he was searching for. What's the point? The point is this, the value of the treasure is what drives our ambitions, our motivations, it's what drives our behavior, it's what drives our very life. The value of the treasure is what drives our life. And it is this value of treasure that changes everything. Even if you gave up everything, you would still have everything. Even if you lost everything, you would still have everything if you had this treasure. Let's be clear about what this parable is not about. It is not saying that we can earn the kingdom of heaven by our willingness to give up everything that we have. A quick reading of this parable, and maybe even a, 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 not a very thoughtful reading of this parable, might cause us to say, the kingdom of God belongs to those who are willing to work for it. Think about it. Let me ask you a question. Is, is $500 a lot of money? A good question for you to ask is, well, it depends. What am I buying? <laughs> if I said a toothbrush, then you, said, then you could say, yes, $500 is a lot of money. But if I said a kidney to save your daughter's life, even if you didn't have $500 to your name, I bet you could find a way to get it. Would that be right? And if I said, is $500 a lot of money for that, you would say, it's nothing. It's nothing. It is cheap. And so the value is, depends on what we're getting for it. When Jesus says, those who find their life and will lose it, but those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Think about it for a second when he says that. He, it, 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 we could say, gosh, Jesus, you're really asking a lot these days. You're really asking for a lot to follow you, that I have to give up my entire life. If we feel that way or say that, we don't understand what it is like to get the kingdom. We don't understand what it is like to have a relationship with Jesus. If we say, you know, Jesus really does have a lot that he demands of us. We don't understand the supreme value and rule of Jesus in our hearts. We think it's expensive to give up our whole life to gain Jesus. And Jesus is saying, it's, it's really nothing. <laughs> You're giving up nothing to gain everything. When Jesus says this, we need to listen closely. And so listen closely. There's nothing more practical than this principle here. You are never acting more in your self-interest than when you are repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus. And do you hear that? It sounds a little selfish, but listen to it again. You're never loving your life more. You're never doing something more for yourself than by giving up control of your whole life to Christ, giving it away to the King of Heaven. You're never acting more in your self-interest by giving up everything for the sake of gaining Christ. You're not losing when you lose everything for Christ. Why? Because, it's, because to those who know the value of the kingdom of God, they know that they're not sacrificing anything. They're gaining everything. The kingdom of heaven matched up with anything in this world, any ambition, any material possession, any, any hope of anything in this world matched up with the kingdom of God. The kingdom wins every single time. That's what these men in these parables find. They find the treasure above every treasure. And what happen, happens next only affirms that this parable is not saying that the kingdom of, of God is earned by those who are willing to work for it. Here's what happens next. Do you see what happens? Then, in joy, they sell everything they have. They find this treasure, and what happens next? Then, in joy, they sell everything they have. 
in joy, they sell everything. It doesn't say he surrenders everything to God and then gets joy. That would change the story and that would change the meaning of the parable. You know, it's like be good and then in their obedience, then in being good and then in following God's commands, then they received joy. Following Jesus is not, well, if I keep sacrificing, if I keep obeying, if I keep pursuing, if I keep trying harder, one day, one day, it'll all pay off and God will give me the joy of my heart. That's not, what, that's not what's happening in this parable. It says that they have joy before giving up everything. It even says that they have joy in the anticipation of giving up everything in order to gain the greatest treasure they've ever found. And that's the joy of the exchange. And that's where this parable moves to. We see the value of this treasure that is greater than everything. And then we see this second point, which is the joy of the exchange. How can we have joy in giving up everything? That is a good question. One, only when you know what you're getting can you have joy in giving up everything. And in these parables, that's what we see in what they have found. Everything you spend money on, think about it practically, everything you spend money on is an exchange of one value for another. You're saying that it is more valuable to have this thing instead of having the money. Every time you give your time to anything, you're saying it's more valuable to spend time that is, that is limited to do this. What I'm doing, this activity or this relationship, is more important than my time, my money, my effort, my energy. Some months ago, I had a $100 bill. It was, it was a good day. <laughs> had a $100 bill. I sold some stuff on Craigslist, had a $100 bill. And I showed it to my son, and he was amazed. He was like, what is that? How, how much is that? Look, that's a lot of numbers. And I was like, it's a $100 bill. He wanted to hold it. He wanted to look at it. He wanted to feel it. He was obsessed with this $100. He had never seen that much money in his whole life, and he was amazed by it. It was the greatest treasure he had ever seen. And then we went to the store to buy a tent to go camping in. And at the cashier, I pulled out my $100 bill, and the tent is on the conveyor counter and I give the cashier a hundred dollar bill my son says wait what are you doing <laughs> and I said well what do you want would you rather have the hundred dollar bill or would you rather have the tent you can't have both and he thinks and he peers over the counter and he looks at the tent and he looks back at the hundred dollar bill and then he says the tent <laughs> this wasn't a hard decision for him because something of greater value was there he laid his eyes on something of greater value, and that thing that was of greatest value to him at the time, the $100, is now it's not worth as much. It was easy for him because something greater was in front of him. Every decision, every decision that we make and everything that we value is an exchange of one value for another. We give in to temptation and the allure of sin, not because our affection of sin is too powerful, but because our affection for Jesus is way too weak. A lack of joy in the pursuit of Jesus has has everything to do with our weakened desire for Him and nothing to do with His weakened value. When we are struggling, when we are sinning against God, when we are choosing some uh, decision to give into sin, rather than letting Jesus rule in our hearts through obedience and love and affection, it is not because that sin is just so overpowering. It's because we are choosing to value that more than Jesus. We are exchanging one value for another. Every sin committed in thought, word, and deed will find its root in a lack of belief that total surrender to God is better than anything. You see, in some way, when we sin, we're all unbelievers. We're all expressing a level of unbelief, an unbelief that says, God, I don't think that you are more valuable than this. 
And so we need to be clear, we need to be honest with ourselves by saying, yes, I agree, that is more valuable than God. That is more valuable than the kingdom. That is more valuable than listening to Jesus. C.S. Lewis says it well in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what, it is, what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Isn't this true? If you find yourself in, in habits of sin, if you find yourself in patterns or vices or behaviors that you keep returning to, it's not because this desire is so strong in your life and it can't be overcome. It is because your pursuit of the fulfilling love of Christ is far too weak. We're created for infinite joy. We're created for infinite joy, but we often settle for fleeting pleasures. We often settle for far too little joys in our life. We need to be honest about that. Is God an enemy of pleasure? Is he a glutton for pain? Absolutely not. No way. God is the author of pleasure. He is the author of joy. Look how creation started. Look how God created the story of mankind. He takes two people, a man and a woman. He gives them unlimited space. He takes their clothes and says, go play. Go have fun. What do you think that they were doing? They were enjoying one another. They were enjoying one another in pleasure. They were enjoying creation. They were enjoying everything that God had made. He says, go play, go and enjoy. God is the creator of pleasure. It's his idea. And there is not one pleasure under the sun that God did not ordain and he did not create. And we're hardwired to pursue pleasure. We're hardwired to be treasure seekers. But we often settle for the wrong treasure. And so giving up and sacrificing are two different things. We could see these men in the parables as ones who sacrificed everything, but it really wasn't a sacrifice if you were to ask them, I believe. But giving up, yes, they gave up everything. A sacrifice is a loss of something. It causes pain. It, it's an act of, of self-abasement, of self-emptying. Do you sense the pain and suffering in these men, in the stories of these men? Do you see, do you think that, is that what you get from these stories, that they're just miserable people giving up everything for the Lord? I don't see that. I see these two men who are joyful, two men that are excited, two men almost in like secret glee and blissful like anticipation. They can't wait to give up their life to get what is of greatest value. Selling all that they own is an act of self-interest. With joy, they sell everything. In the economics of God's kingdom, we get infinitely more than we ever give up. And both of these parables end the same way. What comes to those who give up everything? The answer is obvious, but that doesn't mean it's unimportant. What comes? Well, the result is they take hold of the treasure, and that's our final point. They take hold of it, the hope of ownership. We see the value of the treasure. We see the joy of the exchange. And now, lastly, we see that they actually take hold of it, that everything they've been anticipating, they actually get. It ends the same way. There's this completeness to their joy it is complete when they buy it, when they take hold of it, to own it, to possess it. The kingdom of God is without effect unless we possess it, unless we experience it, unless we actually take ownership of it, unless it actually has control of our life. It's quite possible to love the idea of Jesus and never receive him. You love what he stands for. You love the idea of grace. You love the idea that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You, you love the idea of forgiveness, but you always keep him at a distance. 
we could say, I think it's so wonderful all that Jesus did to secure my salvation. I think it's so wonderful that God would send his only son. And I believe, I believe in that story. It's possible to say that. All that he did on the cross for me, all the love with which he has loved me. Yes, that's great. That's fine. I'm so glad that you love that story. Have you taken hold of it? Have you experienced that in your life to change you? That revolutionary change in your heart, that, change, that gives you new motives, new motivations, new ambitions, new loves, geared towards the love of Christ? Has it caused you to give up your life and all of your acts of self-righteousness? Is it changing you from one day to the next, from one degree of grace to another? Does it cause conviction in your heart to where you repent of your sin, the sin of, of, of loving things more than God? If it's not doing those things, you haven't taken hold of it. You may appreciate it from a distance, but you've never gone and bought it. You have never gone and done everything you could. And there is a difference. To be a Christian is not to adopt some moral code, but rather a principle of relationship with God. To be a Christian is not to agree of, of, of a list of things of what it means to be a Christian. It is to take hold of the kingdom of God. Every other prominent religion would say, you are a follower of this religion if you embrace, if you embrace these truths. And too often Christianity has fallen into that same definition. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it's these bullet lists, and if you believe these things and these doctrines, then you're a Christian. And we say, well, I can affirm those things, I can believe in those things, and I can do some spiritual activity, and then I am a Christian. But Christianity doesn't say that. Christianity says you're a Christian if the life of the risen Jesus has radically altered your spiritual condition. You're a Christian if you have been born again. You're a Christian if you have been given a new heart, raised from the dead, and given new life. This new birth that Jesus talks about in the Gospel of John. Being physically born, as doctors say, is one of the, the most traumatic things you will ever go through as a human being. Traveling through the birth canal is the worst thing that you can think of or talk about at church. <laughs> Our new birth is just as altering, if not more. Our new birth is just as traumatic, just as amazing. How does the possession translate into what it means to be a Christian? Well, Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 3. He says, indeed, I count it all loss. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share in His suffering, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What is Paul's aim? What is his greatest treasure? What is it? that matched up with anything in his life is the best. Gaining Christ, possessing Christ, knowing Christ, and having Christ, buying Christ by giving up his life for Christ. To take hold of the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. How does he do this? And how do the men do this in the parables? Because it's the same message for us. Through unconditional surrender. Now, I can't finish this, but I can't just say, you guys, it's, it's, this message is about the value of God's treasure. 
the value of the kingdom, the value of Christ, and so enjoy that. I must say to you, if I'm going to be faithful to this passage, I must say to you that it will cost you everything. The kingdom of God, the relationship with Christ, the transformation of your soul, the forgiveness of your sins, it will cost you everything. Now, I'm not saying that, that, that the kingdom belongs to those who work hard enough for it. But the joy, as you see the value of God and what he calls us to, Jesus still says to us, he says, this is going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you your life. It's going to cost you your righteousness, your, 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 the righteousness of your own. It's going to cost you everything that you hope in and trust in. You're going to have to surrender all of it to me. It will call you to forsake everything. Yes, everything, your very life. Jesus cannot be more clear on this. You've got to give up your whole life. He says, Jesus would say, I'm second to nothing. I am second to no one. He has no problem making this distinction in his teaching. Through faith, which demonstrates itself in a wholehearted pursuit of Jesus, knowing that if we have Jesus we, and lose everything, we have gained everything still. There is no half-possessing Christ. These two parables make the point vibrant, vibrantly clear, and so it is with Christianity. It is an all-or-nothing thing. It is an all-or-nothing pursuit of Jesus. Some of you might be reading this parable and think this. What does half of all that I own get me? God, what can I sacrifice to you in, in pieces? And what of my life can I give to you? What will that get me? Because surely that will get me something, right? If I give up everything, that's a huge call. Give up everything. But what will half of everything get me? You ready for the answer? Nothing. Nothing. We are either self-governing or we are Christ-governed. We are self-righteous or we trust in the righteousness of Christ. We are other, either trusting in our work and our position and we are resting in treasures of this earth or the kingship of Christ is ruling in our lives. We can't give him our habits, but not our thoughts. We can't give him our time, but not our treasure. We can't give him our work, but not our marriage. What must we, we forsake? Well, Paul teaches us that we must forsake any righteousness of our own. Any righteousness of our own is a broad category. Righteousness of our own is anything that causes us to be caught up in the pursuit of being bigger and better in our life without, while neglecting the thing that ultimately matters. Righteousness of our own is anything that we hold to our credit for the forgiveness of our sin, anything that before Christ we would give him our merit and say, well, these are the things that I could never give up that you asked me to give up. These are the things that are so important to me. These are the things that I feel make me a good person that I think you should see as valuable. Paul says, you guys, no one's better than me. When it comes to being a religious person, Paul says, I'm really the best. I'm the best at everything I do, and it's all worthless. And it's actually those things that I'm really good at that actually hinder my heart. They're a hindrance in my heart of actually trusting in Jesus. And so for that purpose, I, I remove those things. I get rid of them. I consider them as rubbish. I consider them as nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. But to consider all things as loss in comparison to Christ, we gain Christ, our ultimate treasure. In these parables, we, we find a portrait of the gospel itself. Jesus setting aside his crown of glory for the crown of thorns. We see Jesus selling all that he had to purchase salvation for us in his own blood. 
Jesus becoming poor in sin so that we could be rich in Christ. We see the good news wrapped up in these parables as Jesus is telling these things. When it comes to taking hold of the kingdom of heaven, we come, we come with our hand not full of, of what we have done, not full of our accomplishments for God, but we come with our hand open and we say, I have nothing of my own to offer you. I have sold all of it for the great pearl of great price, the righteousness of Christ. We come to Christ asking for his mercy and say, I have nothing. I've given it all away so that I can trust in Jesus, so that I can find my hope in gaining him. Maybe the odds seem stacked against you as you search for joy. Perhaps you deal with a lot of sorrow or anxiety or discontentment or illness, but here's the good news. Jesus is alive, and he is not only the object of our joy, but he is the enabler of our joy. He is the one who works in our heart both to will and to work out his good plans for us. He is the one that changes our affections and gives us a new desire for him. He is the one that stirs in our hearts so that we will love him more than anything else. You may be feeling, well, how do I, I can't, I can't even imagine what it would, be, what it would feel like to, to love Jesus more than everything. Well, he's the enabler of our joy, not just the object of it, not only the perfecter of it. He is the one that helps us, that enables us. As we seek him, as we repent of our sins, of loving lesser things more than him, he is the one that changes us. Oftentimes, our lack of joy is due to the fact that we've just forgotten about Jesus. We've taken our eyes off of him. We've taken our eyes off of the truths of the gospel, that Jesus becomes our, our burden bearer, and for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He sold everything that he has, his very life. He gave it all. He forsake everything so that he may gain us, so that he could die for our sins. Yes, this is where faith comes in. This is where faith comes in. It takes faith, the instrument of our salvation. It is not a blind faith. It's not a blind leap in the dark. Say, okay, God, I'm just going to trust this is true, and I'm just going to throw myself out there. It's not a blind faith. It is a trust in the promise of God, the credibility of Jesus, the track record of a faithful God who has never given up on anything that he has said. Not a single dot, not a single iota, not a single thing in the law, not a single promise of God has ever fallen flat. The Bible says that all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. Every love, every aspiration, every desire that you and I have is little, compared to relationship with Christ. So what do we do? Well, we become more aware, I think, of the things that shape our everyday thoughts. Practically speaking, we become aware of what we love and what shapes us and what treasures we have, what aspirations we have, what behaviors we have. You know, not all things that we treasure are things. Not all treasures are things. Not all self-righteousness is, uh, is material. Sins are not just about making bad decisions, but often about wrongly ordered habits. We're formed by everything around us. What is required for us is a personal audit of our heart. As we read these parables, we should have this personal audit. We should ask ourselves questions like, what do we spend a lot of time thinking about? What, if taken away, would cause you the most grief in your life, and why? What kind of person do you want to be described as by others. What does it mean to live the good life? These and countless other questions, you ask these questions of yourselves. When you ask those questions, you're going to find your treasure. 
you're going to find what you value most. These are your treasures. Those are the possessions of self-righteousness. Those are the things that Jesus is saying that are more important than him in your life. And we need to repent of those sins, repenting of those sins, of our behavior, yes, of course, but also our loves, our treasures, our affections for things, our hope, our image of ourself that we desire to be, and all that we do in the meantime for maintaining that position in the eyes of others. Something is shaping what you long for in your heart. Do you long for the kingdom of God? Do you long for it like these men long for it, to see this treasure and say, there's nothing in all the world that's not worth giving up? Because if I do give that up, I'm going to gain everything that there is. Do you long for the kingdom like that? It is the pearl of great price. It is the treasure of all treasures. It will cost you everything you have, but it's not expensive at all. It's worth everything. Let's pray.